Hello and welcome to the Future of Tax podcast series, Private Enterprise Edition. In part two of this two-part episode, we're joined once again by our host for this special edition, Mike Linter, Global Head of Private Enterprise Tax, Global Tax and Legal, KPMG International, as well as Shai Manukin, Policy Lead for KPMG's Private Enterprise Tax Network at KPMG in Canada, John Reaver, Head of Tax for the KPMG Islands Group, and Greg Lim, Global Head of Family Office and Private Client at KPMG International. In this episode, we'll continue the conversation on the potential impacts of the global minimum tax on private companies and family offices. Mike, let's jump right in. Over to you. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Well, there are definitely some important challenges to keep in mind, but we do know that private companies are very resilient and challenges often lead to opportunities. And I guess, you know, looking for what positive outcomes for family offices and family businesses and other privately owned companies, hopefully there is some on the horizon. Greg, can I start with you, please? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Mike. A bit of crystal ball gazing here, I guess. But I think as we move into a world where we have some level of global minimum tax that's going to apply and is applied widely and hopefully consistently, it will mean that we should start to see some uniformity in how certain structures that often at the moment are yeah, treated differently in, in respect to private wealth. We start to see some of that uniformity as to how they're treated for tax purposes across different countries. So as I mentioned earlier, not just one country treating one thing one way and the other another way. And if you take trust as a great example in, in this scenario, the differences between these structures we have to encounter as professionals when you're looking at how they're taxed are many. I mean, yeah, to many jurisdictions, they don't exist. They're treated as if they're transparent. And you go to other jurisdictions and they're treated as opaque. And some jurisdictions even treat them as both for certain taxes. So this just causes confusion. But hopefully as we start to have more uniformity around where things go, this will help. Yeah, with this in mind, I think yeah, where we have a situation where most tax neutral jurisdictions now in some way, shape or form, seek to introduce the global minimum rate, then I am hopeful that it'll lead to a better understanding of how important a role these jurisdictions play. And therefore, by having that understanding, it should allow us to make tax simple by having some uniformity, but also make it workable. And that will have a great benefit to many clients and many of the clients that we deal with. The flip side to that, though, may come that, and yeah, and, and some clients will have to understand this, that the, there'll be a greater cost of regulation and burden. And as Shai was talking earlier, yeah, this one may mean that we'll have to think about how accounting and accounting principles apply to these types of structures. So that's going to be something that everybody will look at. We'll see positives, but as ever, when you get a positive, there's often a higher cost or a higher complexity burden that comes with it. And that's things that we're going to have to encounter and think about for our clients. Thanks, Greg and John. I love Greg's idea that pillar two is going to make everything more simple. So I'd love to see that, Greg. One, one really interesting thing about pillar two, if you look at it from a jurisdictional point of view, is that a number of these jurisdictions which will be implementing some form of pillar two, you know, the ones I mentioned, the known nominal the tax jurisdictions, they will suddenly come into quite a lot of money. As I mentioned, they will introduce some form of domestic top-up tax on those in-scope companies, because why wouldn't they? You know, those profits are going to be subject to tax, so the, uh, the no nominal jurisdictions might as well tax them themselves. So 
lots of the sort of money coming into those jurisdictions and every single one of those jurisdictions when they mentioned the idea of introducing a top-up tax said that they'll try to reinvest that tax to make sure they are more competitive and when i spoke to the majority of those those governments they've all said the three things in which they'll invest in firstly in people they need they recognise that to make them more competitive, they've got to have a skillful sort of uh, set of individuals who could assist in private clients. Business environment, they know that they have to get their business environment far better. And the next one and the most important one, the cost of doing business. They know they've got to bring that cost down. So you have this bizarre situation that these no nominal sort of the tax jurisdiction will introduce a tax, but they will try to plough that tax back into their economy to make it more competitive. So they recognise that if they remove tax from the equation on deciding whether a business should relocate to their jurisdiction, that they've got to look at other reasons and competitiveness and the cost of business will be one of the major factors on which they'll compete with other jurisdictions. So quite a bizarre situation of, uh, of Pillar 2 helping out some of these jurisdictions. John, that's interesting. But tax is no longer a, a compelling attraction for doing business in certain jurisdictions, as some of the ones you've mentioned, at least for large groups. Why would a family business want to be headquartered or have its family office in a, a place like the British Virgin Isles or Jersey or Bermuda? But some of these places um, come with a stigma, even though everything is legitimate and there are no non-tax related reasons for being there. We need to understand the scope of Pillar 2, and it's something which uh, Shai sort of uh, said, which it, it's important to, to reiterate, that Pillar 2 is not about introducing a 50% tax rate for every single 330 million companies in the world. It only relates to those big boys, those those groups which have sort of three quarters of a billion euros as consolidated revenues. So conservatively, how many companies is that? That's around between six and eight percent of the companies in the world. And I guess sort of in my world, in the, in the no nominal tax jurisdictions, we, we tend to have the bigger voice. So even if we're being sort of pessimistic, we could argue that this will affect around 10 percent of the companies in sort of Jersey, Guernsey, BVI, Bermuda, all the places you've actually mentioned. So in effect, the 90% of other sort of companies will not be affected by Pillar 2. And remember sort of that a lot of the announcements which have actually been made by the governments has stated that Pillar 2 will sit alongside their normal tax regime. So in Bermuda, where there isn't any tax, you'll have a pillar two tax for that. Those affected companies and all the other companies will not be subject to tax. In Jersey, the pillar two laws will sit aside 0-10. So at least 90% of the companies will continue to pay no tax at all. And remember when I said previously about sort of that the extra tax being sent back into the economy. So there is an expectation that the majority of 
family offices which utilises the uh, the no and nominal sort of tax regimes will not be affected by pillar two and can continue to enjoy the zero uh, percent or no tax regime. Thank you, John. And Shine, what would you like to add to John's comments? Well, I think it's an important question. You know, a lot of private companies might think if I'm already being taxed. Why should I stay in Bermuda? Why should I just move back to the UK? I'll have a better story. My PR will be better. It will be easier for me to not being required to explain why I operate from a low-tax jurisdiction. But operating in a low-tax jurisdiction is not always around tax. We keep talking about tax, but there are sometimes other reasons outside tax, especially in the family business context that need to be taken into account, for example, inheritance and succession law. We are focusing our discussion on tax, but a location decision is often a decision that is not taken only for tax reasons, or in some cases, even not majority for tax reasons. There are other legal and regulatory reasons for a group to set its headquarters in a certain jurisdiction. And it's important that people understand that. And also when reviewing the structure, yes, there might be more tax if you fall within the rules and you happen to be in one of these jurisdictions. But there are other reasons that need to be considered. And when making a decision as to whether to relocate from one jurisdiction to another, you need to look at all the considerations, not just the tax, but also the legal and regulatory and reputational and business considerations in making this decision. And as Greg noted earlier, I think that what we need to look at now is maybe as an opportunity for family offices, for private enterprise who happen to fall within the rules or are close to falling within the rules, they are close to the threshold to review their structure, to look at it from a fresh perspective and try to see whether the way they operate so far needs to change going forward. Maybe this is an opportunity for a better, more resilient structure going forward. No, they're really good points, Shai, I think. And, and Johnny, in your experience, why will offshore jurisdictions continue to be relevant? And what do you see happening around the world in some jurisdictions today? Well. Believe it or not, Mike, I honestly think sort of offshore jurisdictions will continue to be relevant. Over the uh, the life of my sort of uh, my career, you know, I've seen a number of uh, onshore jurisdictions trying to uh, eke out a little oasis of tax neutrality and low low regulatory regime. And you know, and they do it very well. So sort that of, it is a nice little oasis. But you step outside that oasis, and you find yourself in a jungle of un- unwielding to regulators and revenue authorities. You know, the offshore world is completely different. Its whole purpose is to try to attract inward investment. Its DNA is there, so they ch- everything, all its laws, all its policies, they all point in one sort of uh, direction, and that is to try to encourage sort of uh, 
inward investments. Now, I'm not saying that they don't abide by international rules. You know, one of my mantras has always been, if you play on the international part, then you play by international rules. And I think the all the offshore world actually does that. But it is slightly different from the onshore. They do ensure that uh, they try to accommodate as much as possible sort of uh, international activity. And so sort of, uh, I think because of that, a number of these jurisdictions have a stable and independent political framework. They've got appropriate and targeted sort of uh, regulation. They've got a great workforce and they've got a good legal system that ensure that if your assets are there, they certainly do try to look after that. And I do think there's a future for these offshore jurisdictions. And as I said before, my view is that sort of that Pillar 2 is a huge game changer, but it will only affect sort of a certain number of companies. And the majority of companies that do utilise the offshore world will remain sort of outside the scope of Pillar 2 and therefore can enjoy sort of a, some form of tax neutrality. So I'm kind of confident that the future of offshore sort of is sound. As we draw today's podcast to a close, what do you see as the path forward for private companies and family offices? What should they expect and how should they see things evolving and how should they respond? Starting with you, Greg. Thanks, Mike. I'll try and make this one short and sweet. I think there's two points really, and one of them is, is really going over points that Shai and John have just mentioned insofar as I don't think what we're seeing with we, uh, with the advancement of Pillar 2 will stop businesses and family offices using the locations we've been familiar with. Yeah, there are many, many other non-tax reasons for structures being located and operated there. And also we shouldn't lose sight of this turnover threshold. But the second point is that I think that those structures and those close to the turnover levels they do have to really prepare themselves for change. Hopefully some of that change will be for the good, but some of it will actually cause some other challenges and will lead to a a need for greater compliance and potentially greater disclosure. And I think we do need to start to look at that. And I don't think that's a negative reason for many. It's just that 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 compliance burden becomes enhanced and increased from there. Thanks, Greg and Shai, from from a policy perspective. Well, we are all seeing a lot of guidance coming from the OECD on the interpretation and implementation of the global rules. The last installment was just delivered earlier this month, and we can expect more guidance in the next few months. In parallel, we'll see more domestic legislation implementing the global rules uh, being implemented in the various jurisdictions. At the time of this recording, which is end of July 2023, we have only three jurisdictions that implemented uh, at least part of the global rules and also an EU directive. There are approximately 11 jurisdictions with draft legislation released with a total of almost 140 jurisdictions agreeing in principle to the appeal to rules and global minimum tax, that means a lot more to come. So even if some of these jurisdictions decide not to join or not to enact the appeal to rules and have the minimum tax apply uh, with respect to their jurisdiction, we are likely to see a very active legislation process in many jurisdictions in the next few months and probably also towards the first part of 2024. Taxvale will need to actively monitor this process as there might be inconsistency in application. There might be jurisdictions that will decide to apply part of the rules and not all of the rules. And that will impact uh, the structures that have presence in each of these jurisdictions. 
Given the timing of the legislation and the fact that many of the jurisdictions that intend to legislate will probably not be able to do it in 2023, we are likely to see transition rules coming from the OECD similar to the transition rule safe harbor that was just released earlier this month. We are also expecting to see more guidance and updates on the method of reporting and the structure of the design of the uh, GLOBE reports from the OECD and from participating jurisdiction who will enact their corresponding domestic legislation. And I also understand that the OECD is planning to publish in the fall a guidebook that would help jurisdictions where their implementation and application of the GLOBE rule. So most of the discussion in the field will continue to be focused on large multinational, and we will try to try and adapt it private enterprise and family office as we go along with the involvement of these pillar two rules. And John? I think it's essential for all family offices and private enterprise companies to actually understand the international landscape. Clearly, they need to determine whether they are caught or not. And even if they're not caught, you know, this is a great time to sort of stop, scratch their heads and have a think about their, their structure. Look at the jurisdictions in which they operate. Is, they, is that appropriate? Should they be reconsidering sort of their whole structure? I do think what worked yesterday might not work tomorrow. So it's, this is just a great time to actually stop and reconsider the whole structure. I think, you know, John's point about what worked yesterday might not work tomorrow or today is a very good point. We talked about, in our first podcast on BAPS, we talked about the reputational risks and the uh, importance that family businesses, private enterprise will have their own tax profile and understand what they and how they want to be perceived and manage actively their reputational risk when it comes to tax, because what works in one jurisdiction, what is seen as fine in one jurisdiction, what might be seen as aggressive and prohibitive in another jurisdiction. And John mentioned earlier, you know, what worked yesterday might not work tomorrow. This is exactly the same thing. What worked for many years might not be good going forward. It's an opportunity for our clients to stop look at their structure, look at their operation, and think whether they want to continue as is or make changes that would enhance and make it more resilient. Thank you, Shai. Well, and thank you, John and Greg, for all your insights today. What I heard is this. It's a fast-changing and sometimes complex business and tax environment for private companies and family offices. But not all of this is bad news. It's also an opportunity to be proactive and look forward for new opportunities as the changes continue to evolve. John, Shai and Greg, thank you on behalf of our listeners. It's been a really interesting conversation and you've given us all a lot to think about. Thank you again, Mike, John, Shai and Greg for that insightful discussion. Join us again next time for a look at some of the other major focus areas that are top of mind for private enterprise leaders, their boards and tax functions. Also, be sure to tune in to our previous podcasts that deal with the major issues and opportunities for private enterprise tax leaders, including tax and ESG, tax policy and the impact of tax on family office philanthropy. Also, email us with any questions you have about today's episode at tax at kpmg.com. We'd also love to hear from you with any suggestions you have for future episodes. Thanks for listening. <laughs>